work in a sin-cursed world is hard. We know this from Genesis 3, that work being hard is part of the fall. Then to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, curse is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Even if you work in an air-conditioned office, we can all agree that we eat bread by the sweat of our face. Right? Working in a sin-cursed world is hard. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter has brought the saints to feast on some amazing spiritual realities. We see some of those in 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. He talks about the great mercy that's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And we see there that dichotomy. We work in the sin-cursed world, but we have this incredible hope, this inheritance or we see our identity, not just as, as workers in, in sin-cursed soil, but as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have the glory of our new identity. We have this privilege of this divinely appointed task of proclamation, of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. But neither this glory of our new identity nor the privilege of proclamation that's been given to us releases us from this reality of living in a sin-cursed world. We still eat bread by the sweat of our face. Salvation hasn't changed the toil of work, but it has exalted our labor into a stage in which a divine drama is taking place. Labor has become a stage. Now, one plot of this drama that's ongoing in our work lives is internal. We saw that in 1 Peter 2.11. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And we see that part of this drama that's taking place is internal. And those around us don't see it, although they see the fruit. As we, as strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And that's part of that drama that is taking place in our work lives. We are abstaining from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. But then there's also this external plot which is taking place at the same time. In verse, verse Peter 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So our work is one stage in which we demonstrate the greatness of Christ as we fight fleshly lust in the pursuit of excellent behaviors for the purpose of our co-workers seeing our good deeds and joining us 
as worshipers on the day of visitation. That's what's going on in our work lives. Today, from 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, verse 18 and 20, we'll draw from Peter's instructions to slaves how we, as, as workers, are both to submit and to suffer in our workplaces with two purposes, so that God will be glorified by our excellent behavior. And it's not separated from the second purpose, and, and gather worshipers to himself. So this morning in 1 Peter 2, verse 18 and 20, we'll draw from Peter's instructions to slaves, and we'll, we'll talk about whether, that's, that we'll, whether we can do that. Uh, we're going to look from his instructions to slaves how we are both to submit and to suffer in our workplaces so that God will be glorified by our excellent behavior and that he will gather worshipers to himself. So I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 and 25. If you didn't catch all of that, I'll say it again in a minute. 1 Peter 2, verses 18 and 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This morning we're going to be focusing on 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20 and 21 to 25, Lord willing, we'll do next week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, giving your word to us. And we thank you, Father, for caring uh, for uh, the slaves of that ancient Roman world. And you wanted uh, to show them how they were to live. And we thank you, Father, that you care about our work lives. We'll see that uh, really it's talking about more than just our, 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 our work lives here. And it's even more than just about slavery. And so we pray, Father, for lots of wisdom as we seek to apply the eternal principles from this passage to our lives. Give us ears that are, are, are eager to hear and help us to apply this passage in the upcoming week. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I've already said from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 20, we'll draw from Peter's instructions to slaves how we are both to submit and to suffer in our workplaces so that God will be glorified by our excellent behavior and gather worshipers to himself. In verse 12, and we've already read that this morning, we saw uh, that Peter called the believers to have excellent behavior. Verses 13 and 17, we looked over the last couple times in 1 Peter. Peter explained what that excellent behavior looked like in, in response to, to the government. Although he went broader in verse 17 to describe our relationship to all men. Now, in verse 18, Peter begins to explain what the, what the excellent behavior of slaves would look like. It's essential that we understand some of the background of slavery in the Roman Empire. It's estimated that 20 to 25% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So in a gathering of believers like this, a quarter of us would be slaves. It's quite possible since God uh, didn't often save the honorable and the noble and those that the world esteemed, that it could have been more like 50 or 75%. So instructions to slaves would have been essential. 
I'm going to read some extended quotes here because I think really I can do better reading some commentaries, uh, setting a background of slavery than trying to, to regurgitate these words in, in my own writing. So here's what Thomas Schreiner says about slavery. People became slaves by being captured in wars, kidnapped, or born into a slave household. Those facing economic hardships might choose to sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Many slaves lived miserably, particularly those who served in the mines. Other slaves, however, served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, and could even own other slaves. It would not be unusual for a slave to be better educated than the master. Those who are, who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must beware of imposing our historical experience on New Testament times since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race and American slave owners discouraged education of slaves. Still, slaves in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters and hence they had no independent existence. They could suffer brutal mistreatment at the hands of their owners and children born in slavery belonged to masters rather than the parents who gave them birth. Slaves had no legal rights, and masters could beat them, brand them, and abuse them physically and sexually. One scholar remarks, Despite claims of some New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was not more humane than modern slavery. Slaves could purchase their freedom in the Greco-Roman world with the help of their masters. Uh, however, it was mainly for urban slaves, and most slaves had no hope of, of, of being able to purchase their freedom. Here is a, another scholar that, that, that helps balance some of that. Central features that distinguish first century slavery from that later practice in the New World are the following. Racial factors played no role, so it was not about race. Education was greatly encouraged. Some slaves were better educated than their owners and enhanced the slaves' value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their, their religious and cultural traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. Now, I just wanted to kind of balance that because a lot of times, and you do read commentaries that talk about how much better slavery was in the ancient world uh, than, than, than what happened to American-born slaves or, 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 or slavery in America. And it is true, it could be better, but it could also be very, very bad. So really, discussing slavery in the Bible doesn't become more simple uh, it is still a complex issue. Slaves did not have good lives. Now, some slaves did. It really depended highly on how their, almost to some extent, on the wisdom of their master. Did their master value them? Then they could have a good life. If their master didn't value them, they could have had a horrible life. Uh, I'm going to quote, quote again Thomas Schreiner. It's crucial to note that the New Testament nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. It says nothing positive about it. It nowhere roots it in the created order, as if slavery is an institu institution ordained by God. The contrast with marriage is remarkable at this point. God ordained the institution of marriage, but slavery was invented by human beings. The New Testament regulates the institution of slavery as it exists in society, but it does not commend it per se. Hence, Peter's words on slavery should not be interpreted as an endorsement, endorsement for the system, even if he does not denounce the institution. I just wanted to provide some of that background here, because this is a difficult topic to be talking about. It's a difficult topic as we hear about slavery in America uh, and the horrible system and injustice that it was. Um, and by, but I don't want to oversimplify it either. 
This is a human institution where abuses were rampant. We do have to ask ourselves, and I'm going to return this in a little bit, does this verse apply today? Does talking about slavery apply when employment is not an identical situation? Excuse me. The situation is so different. Can we apply to our employment, to our work relationships, what the Bible teaches about slaves? Obviously, from a proposition, I agree that we can, but we'll get back to that in a minute. So let's look first at how Peter instructs, instructs the slaves and how we are going to see that we in our work world, uh, uh, how we are to, to submit. You see that you, you, you have a blank line if you're taking notes there, and I'm going to fill it in for you, but not for a while. Let's look at the context first. If we back up a little bit to verse 13, uh, we see the context of the command here to to submit. In verse 13, Peter commanded, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And to remind us, slavery is a human creation. It is not part of God's creation order. So verse 13 applies to slavery. It is a human institution. And really, verse 17 is an applying of verse 13. In verses 15 and 16, though, Peter, knowing he's writing to many slaves, encouraged the saints that they were to submit as those who have been freed. What a thrilling concept that would have been to many of them. But that being freed was freed from something even worse, and that being freed was freed from sin. And having been freed from sin, they'd become slaves to God. They'd been redeemed from their futile way of life with the precious blood of Christ. But that freedom wasn't to be used as a covering for evil. And because they had been freed from sin, didn't it give them an excuse to disobey their masters? He wrote those that he knew were slaves. But he told them, you've been freed from sin, become slaves of God. Don't use that as a covering for evil. You've been liberated. You have a new Lord. But that doesn't change what verse 18 says. So in verse 18, Peter turns his attention to those who are not only the slaves of the Lord, but still slaves of earthly master. Freedom from Christ was not freedom from their earthly masters. Probably because Peter has already been using this language of, of, of slavery. He begins in verse 18 with a synonym for, for slave, house servant, or really it is often slave or house slave. And it's really not so much that, that Peter's making a distinction. I think he's making a distinction as he begins verse 18 with servants. Those servants were really slaves. And he's making a distinction because he's already been addressing slaves. He's been addressing us all as slaves of God. So that is the background. He's been preparing the slaves to hear this instruction. He's been encouraging them with their rescue from slavery to sin and having become slaves of God. And now he tells them what the command is. And the command is that they are to be submissive to your masters. To be, to be submissive, and we saw this in verse 13, it's the same word, is to order yourself under someone else. To get in line, to give up your will, to do the will of another. Submission includes not only the action of obedience, but also attitudes of deference and respect. Peter gives a motivation for this command to the slaves. The motivation was with all fear. Now, both your New American Standard Bibles and your ESV Bibles translate uh, the word respect. 
It says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. I don't love that translation of that word respect. We just saw that word in the previous verse. Guess what it was? Fear. Where, it was, where, where out of all humanity, we were commanded to fear God. And so when Peter uses that same word in verse 18, he's not saying with all respect. He's saying with all fear. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. And you're like, wait, we're not supposed to fear men, right? We're supposed to fear God. And that's our motivation. At, for the, it was the motivation for the slaves to be submissive to their masters with all fear because you fear God. Obey because you fear God. Peter's been preparing for this. In 1 Peter 1.17, he says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We are to live in fear before God. This is not a craven fear. This is not a sitting and shaking in the dark fear. This is not a fear of an outraged slave master who's going to beat us. No, this is a fear of God who is our Father, but who is evaluating, who is watching, in whose presence we live, who, is, who we are waiting to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So he, he, he's encouraging them, he's motivating them. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, with all fear of your God, your Father, who's redeemed you. In a very real reality, You've been purchased by the blood of Christ to obey your masters, slaves. We see what the extent of the submission is. He says in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all, with all fear, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Submission wasn't dependent upon the character of the master. Some were good and gentle. And they were probably a delight often to say yes sir to, to obey. They were good masters. They were well taking care of slaves. But others were unreasonable. The root of the word unreasonable is scolios. The word that we get scoliosis from. Curvature of the spine. Scalios means what is curved, what's bent, what's crooked, what's morally crooked and scrupulous. Or you could use the word perverse. Some masters are good and gentle. So unreasonable, okay, ESV has unjust. Really perverse is a better word. This is a hard word. Peter understood some of your masters are wicked men. Some of your masters are cruel, perverse people. But you still have to be submissive to them. Obedience wasn't based on the morality of the master. We do know obedience should be based on the morality of the action, and we've talked about that. Just as it would be wrong to obey the government, if the government demanded we disobey God, it would be wrong to obey a master who demanded that they disobey God. But submission wasn't a matter of who you obeyed, no matter how good or evil they were. I think that makes the command here clear what it would mean for slaves. Uh, tough to get a full grasp of how difficult 
this would be for slaves and how much they would have needed to rely on Jesus Christ living in them to fulfill this command. How they could not do this. How they would have to abstain from fleshly lust, raging war against their soul that would make them want to run away from the master. That would make them want to fight the master if they could. Slander the master. Now that's the ancient world. Let's talk about, should we apply the principles of this verse to today's work world? Work is a major portion of our lives, so it's natural for us to look and to say, what does Scripture teach us? Many of us work in employer-employee relationships that are, not, that are not found in the ancient world. So we have to say, does Scripture speak to this? Like slavery, though, employment is a human institution. It is something that man has made up. We have, unlike slaves, the freedom to end our employment relationship when we wish, at least many of us do. Peter has already commanded the saints to submit to every human institution. So naturally, we've already answered that question. Our, our employment relationships are already covered under verse 13. We should be submissive in those. But there is much that we have in common with slaves. We, we all, many of us do very similar kinds of work to what these slaves in the ancient Roman world were doing. We also get our livelihood, not from our masters, but from our employers. They were dependent. If we don't work, we don't eat. Much like those slaves. So as we seek to understand what our relationship with our, what, with our employers ought to be, these verses are natural places to look. And we see how we should how we should be submissive. So if you're taking notes, you've got a blank line there. And here's kind of a principle taken from this. Submit to those for whom you work because you fear God. Submit to those for whom you work because you fear God. We fear God. We know that God is going to evaluate and reward the way that we work for our employers. Regardless of whether our bosses are good or whether they're twisted. Whether they're model citizens or whether they're morally bankrupt. Regardless whether they're, they're, they're faithfully married and loving husbands and fathers and wives and mothers or they're having adulterous affairs and sleeping around. It doesn't matter anything about the boss. We are to be submissive to them. Submission is going to look differently depending on what our responsibilities are. Now, I understand that. For some of you, part of your employment relationship is that there are times when you push back against your boss. But you need to do that in a submissive way. Some of you are actually paid to come up with, with, with ideas that are challenging. So being submissive doesn't mean that you just say, yes, sir, every time, depending on your roles. For some of you, it may. right? But some of you are actually paid to come up with challenging ideas and ask challenging questions. So I don't want us to, to paint a picture of being submissive. It's just saying, yes, sir. But it is saying, I'm going to obey what my boss has called me to do as well as I can, regardless of whether you agree with their decisions or not. Submitting to your boss in a way that honors the Lord requires you to abstain from your fleshly lust. It requires you to wage war against your flesh, to fight your pride to fight your complaining, to fight your bitterness, to fight envy, to fight slander. 
This doesn't matter if you're working in fast food or as a doctor. Submitting to your boss in today's world doesn't mean that you have to work more than what you agreed to. You get paid. It doesn't mean that you have to work for less than what you agreed to. But when you can't meet what your boss is asking, to do that with a submissive attitude, to do that with, with humility, to do that with understanding that, that, that you're going to honor what the stipulations of your relationship are, and when you can't, or when you have to change those, that you do that in a submissive way. Now, I've been thinking about this. You may choose, for the sake of the gospel, to go over beyond in your relationship at work. You may choose to, to have such an attitude of submission that wisely and in a balanced way you choose to work extra. Or you choose to take a pay cut. Because, because you understand that this stage here, there's something bigger going on. That this is about you proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you're a stranger and a sojourner in this world for a purpose. Now, I can't chapter and verse to say that you would ever have to do that. You probably need a lot of wisdom. What does submissive being look like in a relationship that you're, that's kind of at will? It's at will on their part, and then you can end this and this relationship. But we had this opportunity, since this is this, the, the stage, where we, we want to be gaining worshipers who are going to be worshiping our Father with us for eternity. So what can you do at work to show an attitude of submission that you're dying to yourself for the good of your employer or for their boss? So let me ask you, do you have a reputation as submissive? as you've shared the gospel in your workplace, as you have done that in ways which are respecting, again, what the confines of your workplace are, but as you've taken opportunity, as time has grown, people know that you're a Christian. Are you giving a good reputation to the gospel because of your submissive attitude, because of your eagerness to serve, because of your willingness to do your job as best as possible? Are you eager to see your employer and your fellow employees as your fellow worshipers on the day of, of visitation? I've included some other verses there for you so that you can uh, look at some of those other passages talking about this slave-master uh, uh, relationship at home. I'll just read one because it is affirming. And really, you'll see that this is the widespread teaching of the New Testament, is that slaves are to be submissive to their masters. Titus 2, verses 9 through 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in, 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 in every respect. Okay, we've talked so far about how, how to submit. I do have to decide. I think, I think that, 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 that we're going to try to go forward and look at some at how to suffer. And I don't know how far along we will get here. Um, how, how to suffer in verses 19 and 20. 
So nothing in this passage, in verses 19 to 20, are specifically, uh, is specifically limiting this conversation about suffering to slaves. The only thing that, that hints he's still talking about slaves or still has an eye towards slaves is, is in verse 20, where it says, harshly treated. And that word literally means to be beaten with fist. So at least slavery is the prompt for, for, for this conversation here. But as we will see next week as we move into verses 21 to 25, Peter is expanding the conversation, launching from how slaves would go through unjust suffering. He's going to talk about how we are, are, are all to go through unjust suffering. We're, there's, there's, there's two kinds of suffering here we see in verses 19 and 20. There's suffering which is re, 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 rewarded and suffering which isn't. We see the suffering which is rewarded talked about both in the beginning of verse 19 and at the end of verse 20. In the beginning of verse 19, it says, For this finds favor, and for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering un un unjustly. So that's one kind of suffering. That same parallel uh, phrase or, uh, the, or the same kind of wording is used at the end of verse 20. Talk about the same kind of suffering. For if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Thus, uh, in both verses 19 and 20, that word favor is really the Greek word charis, grace. Okay? So, it is interesting here because it could sound, sound like for this finds favor or this is grace. This is a gracious thing from God when you go through suffering. Now, scripture does teach that, but that's not the best tra translation of this word charis here. See, charis has a range of meaning that although here it is used uh, uh, and it's translated as favor, which is a good idea, it also has this idea of credit or reward or what is coming to us. So I know that's kind of surprising that the word translated in the New Testament as grace, which means getting what we don't deserve, is also used for, for and it's because of the common core of favor, of getting what we should we see that Jesus uses that in Luke's verse uh, six, Luke, Luke chapter six, verses thirty-two to thirty-four. He says, "If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Or what grace is that to you? What reward is that to you? What favor is that to to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit? What grace is that? What favor is that to you?" Like, what reward are you going to get from that? So Peter is talking about the reward that we get, what, what, it, what God kind of credits to us as we go. Now, this is not a salvation credit. We're not talking about earning our salvation. But, but what God is going to reward us for as we go through, through suffering. In verse 20, uh, in, the, in, in the beginning, it says, what credit is there? It's a different word there, uh, which also means fame or glory. What, what, what glory do you get? What fame do you get? when you uh, go through suffering for doing wrong. So we see here that there's a suffering which is rewarded by God, which he credits, which the God that we fear, he, as he evaluates, he, he sees our suffering, and he's going to reward us for it. There's also a suffering that is not rewarded by God. We see that in verse 20. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure, endure with patience? So there's a suffering which is to our credit and a suffering which is not. Both kind of sufferings have this in common. Both sufferings 
are, have harsh treatment. In verse 19, it describes sorrows. It's broader more than just physical abuse. It could be the, 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 the long hours or the insufficient wages or the verbal tirades of their master, the disrespect that they went through. It's sorrows. It's a broad term. Verse 20, as I already mentioned this, is, is harshly treated. That means to be, to be struck with fist. But that could also ha have a metaphorical meaning. So both of these kinds of suffering, one is rewarded, one is not, they both are going through harsh treatment, through, through, through sorrows and physical beatings, perhaps. And both are responded to with patience. In verse 20, or, or, or let's start at verse 19, he says they, that they bear up under. In verse 20, they endure it with patience. Again, at the end of verse 20, and you patiently, you, you patiently endure it. So both kinds of suffering, one is rewarded, one is not. Both are going through harsh treatment. Both are enduring patiently. They are, are going through it. They are being steadfast. But the difference in the reward, which of the suffering is, is rewarded and which isn't, is what is the provocation of the suffering? The suffering which is not reward, and this is not a surprise, is when you sin. And we see that in verse 20. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Now, Peter doesn't specify whether the sin is against God or against man. And really, because Peter wouldn't need to. Because not submitting to their masters would have been sin against both their masters and against God. For a slave to disobey the master was for them to disobey God in most circumstances, unless, of course, he commanded the slave to disobey God. Now, notice that Peter doesn't say anything that the harsh treatment that the master gives is good. He doesn't say, now you've sinned against your master, so you deserve to be beaten with fist. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say they deserved this harsh treatment. But it's not going to be rewarded. Suffering will not lead to reward when preceded by sinning. Regardless of the unjustness of the suffering, regardless of how patiently one endures, if you're the cause of what you go through, there's no reward for going through it. But the suffering that is rewarded is distinguished not by the endurance. Both this kind of, uh, of, uh, of sufferings are endured but by the nature of the obedience, by the nature of the obedience. The nature of the obedience is described in two ways. It's described in verse 19 as, here it says, for the sake of conscience toward God. Or in the ESV, it says mindful of God. See, there's a motive behind our submission to our masters. Instead of focusing here, Peter's not talking about our conscience toward God, like keeping a clear conscience although that idea is not far behind, it's more a consciousness of God. Or I prefer the ESV's mindful of God. God consciousness. Or as the Puritans use the phrase, quorum Deo, living before God in the presence of God. The suffering that is rewarded by God is the suffering that you go through because God is omniscient, seeing all that you do. It's because of what you do, because he is omnipresent, because he's always with you. It's because of what you do, because God is sovereign, having given commands to you. Because God is faithful, because you know that he's a rewarder of those 
who diligently seek him. It's because God is kind, having only good will towards those who have been united to his son, Christ Jesus. So it's on account of consciousness of God, because of God's presence, that you go through suffering as you seek to make disciples of your fellow co-workers while submitting to your employers. Some of you do not have that freedom on work hours. You can do it at your break hours. You can do it outside of work. Maybe because you're in a supervisor relationship, you have to be careful. But many of you have that freedom. So it's because of that suffering. Or it's because of your consciousness of God you seek to make disciples. Or because of your consciousness of God, you will not go against the government's laws. You will not go against God's laws in your workplaces. And you're, you're, you're getting heat at work because of what you refuse to do. You say, no, I can't break God's laws. I can't go against the government's laws. That's because of a consciousness of God. Or because of consciousness of God, and I love this, you simply do your job. See, you can simply do your everyday work because of consciousness of God, because of mindful of God, with an eye to pleasing to the Lord, because he is the one you fear. See, with a consciousness of God, all work is sacred. Pleasing him, and really in all of work, in the way that we change your diapers, in the way that we give haircuts, prescribe medications, teach classes, drive buses, all of that work we can do with a God consciousness, mindful of God, aware that we are in God's presence. So any suffering that is unjust at work, any suffering that you go through as you do this in consciousness of God will be rewarded as you patiently endure. It doesn't just have to be, be, well, I shared the gospel and I suffered, so that kind of suffering is going to be rewarded by God. Or, or, or because I stood up and I wouldn't break that law, I suffered. Well, that would be examples. But any work that you do with consciousness of God as you suffer doing, as you suffer unjustly, that is going to be rewarded by God. It could be your manager berating that you don't flip burgers quick enough. You're flipping those burgers for God. This is God's stage. You're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. This is all about him. This is not the only time in my life I've done this. We're going to stop right there, which is too long. And so we're going to pick up our notes here last time, next time, and we'll continue in, in, into verses 22 uh, to 25. I think that that's a good place, though, for us to stop. Thinking about the stage in which God has placed you. You have this purpose to be making disciples. You are strangers and aliens. You are seeking worshipers. So in your workplaces... Submit to your masters, submit to your employers with an eye to God, knowing that he is the one who has assigned that work to you. He doesn't make any mistakes, whatever tasks you have in the upcoming week. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that uh, you cared about uh, the situation, and really for many, the plight of these slaves, 
And Lord, what we see here um, does not glorify slavery, but it glorifies you through slaves' obedience. And we see uh, the extent of redemption, not in freeing these slaves from their masters, but in freeing them from the far worse uh, dominion of the master's sin. And so because of this in the, in, in the ancient world, uh, we see in Scripture appealing to slaves as, 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 as brothers, slaves who could be elders over even their own masters, slaves who had these, these internal privileges to look forward to, and who were put in the midst of unjust suffering to make the excellencies of your son shine forth. And Lord, you have, in your sovereignty, placed us in difficult work circumstances. And many of my brothers and sisters uh, here uh, would change uh, things about their jobs if they could. Maybe they do have some of them, unjust bosses, long work hours, too little pay. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help them uh, to be submissive to their bosses with an eye to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help them uh, to see that they are doing their work with a consciousness of you, that, that, that unless it is disobedience to you, you are the one who has given them the assignments of that day. And please, Father, strengthen them for this work of glorifying you in their workplace environment. Father, we do pray uh, for more uh, worshipers from, uh, uh, from our workplaces. We pray, Father, that you would give us uh, more boldness as we have opportunity. Help us to show more of the kind of love that Jesus was just talking about, even though it was a different passage, but uh, going beyond with our coworkers, inviting them into our lives, lavishing love on them so that we have an opportunity to uh, see them become your disciples too, Lord. Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters as they go into this upcoming work week. And Lord, even for moms who are staying at home, for those who are retired, Lord, we, we, we know that we, are still, we still have responsibilities and we still want to do this work with an eye toward you. And so please, Father, may you be glorified in the way that we work. In Jesus' name, amen.